0: Hello, welcome to the Bore You To Sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Welcome to tonight's episode of the Bore You To Sleep podcast, we'll be reading from the Evening Post, A Century of Journalism by Alan Nevins. The book looks at the press in America in the early 1800s. I hope the book helps you get to sleep. Special thanks to a couple of listeners Stella Stew in Canada, Chuck Fan 06 in USA. I appreciate your kind words and glad the podcast is helping you get a good night's rest. If you would be so kind, and if you enjoy the episode, please subscribe, leave a review and rating, as it helps grow the show family, and helps reach more people who need a good night's rest. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Chapter 1. Hamilton and the Founding of the Evening Post Of all the newspapers established as party organs in the time when Federalists and Democrats were struggling for control of the government of the Infant Republic, but one important journal survives. It is the oldest daily in the larger American cities which has kept its name intact, the Aurora, the Sentinel. The American Citizen, Porcupine's Gazette, whose pages the generation of Washington and Adams, Jefferson and Burr, scanned so carefully, are mere historical shades, but the Evening Post, founded in 1801 by Alexander Hamilton and a group of intimate political lieutenants, for the expression of Hamilton's views remains a living link between that day of national beginnings and our own. The spring of 1801, when plans were laid for issuing the Evening Post, was the blackest season the Federalists of New York had yet known. Jefferson was inaugurated as President on March 4th, and the Upper as well as the lower branch of Congress, had now become democratic. In April, the state election was held, and the ticket headed by gouty old George Clinton won a sweeping victory over the Federalists so that at Albany, the Democrats took complete control. The governorship, legislature, and council of appointment were theirs. Many Federalists sincerely believed that the nation and state had been put upon the road to ruin. They were convinced that the party of Washington, Hamilton and Adams, which had built up a vigorous republic out of a ramshackle confederation, was the only party of construction and that democracy meant ruin to the public credit, aggressions by the states upon a weak central government, and national disintegration. Hamilton wrote Governor Morris after the election, in all seriousness, that the Constitution had become a frail and worthless fabric. For Hamilton himself, inasmuch as many of his own party deemed him responsible for the disaster which had overtaken it. The hour was doubly black. No other leader approached him in brilliance, but his genius was not unmixed with an erratic quality. He and John Adams, men of wholly different temperaments, tastes and habits, had always instinctively disliked each other. And during Adams' administration, the latter had provoked an open breach with Hamilton, which meant a lot of division of the Federalists into two factions. Hamilton, stung by Adams' hostility and in especial by the charge that he was too anglophile to be patriotic, had so far lost control of himself as to commit a capital political blunder. He had written just before the election of 1800 a bitter analysis of the public conduct and character of John Adams, and though he designed this attack for confidential circulation only, it soon became public... The Democrats, their victory already assured, had made the most of it, and the resentment of Adams' adherents was intense. The party divide was widened when it fell to the House of Representatives early in 1801 to decide the tie for the presidency between Jefferson and Burr. Of the two, Hamilton patriotically preferred Jefferson, and used his influence to persuade the Federalist representatives to vote for him. But New England Federalists, Adams' friends, opposed this view, and to Hamilton's disgust, all the New England states save Vermont went into Burr's column. Hamilton gladly turned in April 1801 from his preoccupation with politics to his law practice. 43 years old, with eight children and a wife to support, with no savings and ambitious of building himself a country home on the upper part of Manhattan, he needed the $12,000 a year Which he could earn at the city bar. When he thought of public affairs, he felt not tired, he was too intense for that, but chagrined and misused. After all, the real causes of Adams' defeat were the alien and sedition laws, the persecuting temper of the administration its hot and cold policy in dealing with French outrages and Adam's vanity, caprice and irascibility. But Hamilton, by his pamphlet attack on the President, had seriously damaged his own reputation for generalship. His friend Robert Troop wrote that this misstep had been most unfortunate. An opinion has grown out of it, which at present obtains almost universally, that his character is radically deficient in discretion. Hence, he is considered as an unfit head of the party. Hamilton himself admitted, Troop says, that his influence with the federal party was wholly gone. He might well think of the assistance a newspaper would lend in defending himself from the Adams faction, restoring Federalist prestige, and attacking the triumphant Democrats. Hamilton had many local companions in defeat, ready to support such a journal. Troop himself and one other close friend, the cultivated merchant, William W. Wolsey, had been beaten for the Assembly. A general removal of Federalists from office followed the overturn. Though President Jefferson proved milder than had been feared, he made a number of changes, the most notable being that by which the wealthy Joshua Sands, with a store at 118 Pearl Street, lost the collectorship of the port. As for the new authorities at Albany, they were merciless. The Council of Appointment was dominated by young DeWitt Clinton, the governor's pushing nephew and its guillotine worked night and day, till every obnoxious head was off. In place of the tall and dignified Richard Varick, who had been one of Washington's secretaries, and to whose public spirit the American Bible Society, which he founded, is still a monument, it appointed Edward Livingston to be mayor in place of the scholarly Coldwaller Colden, it made Richard Riker the Attorney General, Sylvanus Miller was brought down from Ulster to be surrogate, and Ruggles Hubbard from Rennesley to be sheriff. The very justiceships of the peace were transferred, the clerkship of the circuit court whose jurisdiction covered the city was taken from William Coleman and given to John McKeeson. A majority of the people of the city were Federalists and they watched all these transfers with pain. The local leaders and especially Hamilton had for some time been aware that they lacked an adequate newspaper organ Three city journals, The Daily Advertiser, and The Daily Gazette, both morning publications and The Commercial Advertiser, an evening paper, were Federalist in sympathy. But Snowden's Daily Advisor and Lang's Gazette were almost exclusively given up to commercial news. And while E. Baldin's commercial advertiser, which still lives as The Globe, devoted some attention to politics, it lacked an able editor to write controversial articles. As the Chief Democratic Sheet remarked, it is too drowsy to be out of service in any cause. It is a powerful opiate, This democratic sheet was the American citizen, edited by the then-noted English refugee and radical James Cheatham. He was a slashing and fearless advocate of Jeffersonian principles, who daily filled from one to two columns with matter that set all the grocery and hotel knots talking someone as vigorous but of better education and taste Cheatham had once been a hatter was needed to expound Hamiltonian doctrines it was hoped that this new editor and journal could give leadership and tone to the whole Federalist press for a sad lack of vigour was evident from Maine to Charleston The leading Federalist newspapers of the time, Benjamin Russell's Columbian Sentinel, The Current in Hartford, The Gazette in the United States in Philadelphia, and The Baltimore Federal Gazette did not fully meet the wishes of energetic Federalists. Their conductors did not compare with the chief Democratic editors, James T. Callender, whom Adams had thrown into jail, Thomas Paine, B.F. Bark, Franklin's grandson, Philip Freneau, and William Duane. Some agency was needed to rouse them. They should be helped with nurse and pen, wrote John Nicholas a leading Virginia Federalist to Hamilton. They seldom republish from each other, while on the other hand, their antagonists never get hold of anything. However trivial in reality, but they make it ring through all their papers from one end of the continent to the other. In the summer of 1800, Hamilton called... Oliver Walcott's attention to libels printed by the Philadelphia Aurora upon prominent Federalists, and asked if these outrageous assaults could not be counteracted. We may regret, but we cannot now prevent the mischief which these falsehoods produce, replied Walcott. The establishment of journals, for party purposes, had become. In the dozen years since, the Constitution was ratified. A frequent occurrence, and no political leader knew more of the process than Hamilton. He had won his college education in New York by a striking article in St. Kitt's newspaper, No one needs to be reminded how, in the revolutionary crisis, when a stripling in King's College, he had attracted notice by anonymous contributions to Holt's journal, nor how in the equally important crisis of 1787 to 1788, he published his immortal Federalist essays in the Independent, Journal. Samuel Loudon, head of the Independent Journal, used to wait in Hamilton's study for the sheets as they came from his pen. To support Washington's administration, Hamilton, in 1789, encouraged John Fenno, a Boston schoolmaster of literary inclinations, to establish the Gazette of the United States at the seat of the government and in 1793 when Fenno appealed to Hamilton for $2,000 to save the journal from ruin the latter took steps to raise the sum making himself responsible for half of it Hamilton also financially assisted William Cobbett The best journalist of his time in England or America, to initiate his newspaper campaign against the democratic haters of England. He, Rufus, King, and others in New York helped provide the capital, with which Noah Webster founded the Minerva in that city in 1793, and he and King together, wrote for it a series of papers signed Camillus upon Jay's Treaty. If Hamilton's unsigned contributions to the Federalist press from 1790 to 1800 could be identified, they would form an important addition to his works. It is evident from the published and unpublished papers of Hamilton that an early date in 1801, when he was devoting all his spare time to the hopeless state campaign, he was giving thought to the problem of improving the party press. He wrote Senator Bayard of Delaware a letter upon party policy to be presented at the Federalist Caucus in Washington on April 20. In it, he gave a prominent place to the necessity for the diffusion of information, both by newspapers and by pamphlets. He added that to do this, a fund must be raised and proposed forming an extensive association, each member who could afford it, pledging himself to contribute $5 annually for eight years for publicity. Hamilton's fingers, whenever he was in a tight place, always itched for the pen. Noah Webster had withdrawn from the Minerva three years previous, while Fenno had died at about the same time, leaving the Gazette of the United States to a son, so that Hamilton could no longer feel at home in these journals. But if a Hamiltonian organ was started, who should be the editor? Fortunately, this question was easily answered to the party motives which Hamilton, Troop, Walcott and other leading Federalists had in setting up such a journal. At this juncture, there was added a motive of friendship toward an aspirant for an editorial position. In 1798, there had been admitted to the New York Bar a penniless lawyer of 32 from Greenfield, Massachusetts, named William Coleman. He had come with a record of two years' service in the Massachusetts house, an honorary degree from Dartmouth College, and warm recommendations from Robert Treat Payne, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, who at this time was a judge of the Massachusetts Supreme Court. After a brief and unprofitable partnership with Aaron Burr, a misstep which he later declared he should regret to his dying day, Coleman formed a partnership with John Wells, a brilliant young Federalist attorney. Wells was just the man to draw Coleman into intimacy with the Federalist leaders. He was a graduate of Princeton, a profound student of the law, was rated by good judges one of the three or four best speakers in the city, and was a member of the friendly club an important literary society. Governor John Jay offered him a justiceship of the peace and Hamilton trusted him so much that in 1802 he selected him to edit the first careful edition of The Federalist for which Hamilton himself critically examined and revised the papers. Through Wells in 1798 and 99, Coleman came to know the members of the Friendly Club, including W. W. Woolsey, the novelist Charles Brockton Brown, the dramatist William Dunlap and Anthony Blecker, and James Kent, later Chancellor. He had already met Hamilton on the latter's trip into New England in 1796 and now he fell completely under the great man's spell. In his later life, he dated everything from the beginning of their friendship. The two had much in common besides their political views, for Coleman possessed a dashing temper, a quick mind, and a ready bonhomie. In the spring of 1800, there took place in New York The famous trial of Levi Weeks, charged with murdering Galima Sands, a young girl, and throwing her body into one of the Manhattan Company's wells, a trial in which Hamilton and Burr appeared together for the defense, and saved Weeks from conviction by a mass of circumstantial evidence. Coleman, a master of shorthand, immediately published a praiseworthy report of the trial. One of his political enemies admitted that it is everywhere admired for its arrangement, perspicuity and the soundness of judgment it displayed. Coleman was encouraged to plan a volume of reports of decisions in the state Supreme Court at the moment, the clerkship of the court fell vacant. Hamilton at once wrote Governor John Lay and also Ebsner Foote, a member of the Council of Appointment, requesting that the place, which paid $3,000 a year, be given his friend Coleman. There was another candidate with a really superior claim but he was passed by. Governor Jay announced the result in the following hitherto unpublished letter to Hamilton. Mr. Coleman, who was yesterday appointed clerk of the New York Circuit, will be the bearer of this. Mr. Skinner was first nominated for where character and qualifications for office are admitted. The candidate whose age, standing, and prior public service is highest should, I think, take the lead, unless perhaps in cases peculiarly circumstanced. Mr Skinner did not succeed, Mr Coleman was then nominated, and the council expecting much from his reports, and considering the office as necessary to enable him to accomplish that work advised his appointment Mr. Coleman's embarrassments and whatever appeared to me necessary to observe respecting the candidates were mentioned antecedent to the nomination my feelings were in Coleman's favour and my judgement been equally so he would have suffered less anxiously than he has I mentioned your opinion in his favour, and I wish the appointment may be generally approved. Ten or eleven of the members recommended Mr Skinner. Some of them will not be pleased. I hope Mr Coleman will be attentive to the reports. Much expectation has been excited, and disappointment would produce disgust. It is, I think, essential to him that the work be prosecuted with diligence, but not with haste, and that they may be such as they already hope. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope it's helped you get to sleep, or a little drowsy, and if you're not yet asleep, please feel free to listen to another episode. Good night.